So thank you everyone for coming today to our Critical Care Grand Rounds. So we're really fortunate today to have Michael Shashadi join us. He's from the University of Pennsylvania, so he's joining us remotely, of course, because we're in a COVID pandemic time. Um, so uh, Michael did his undergraduate training at Georgetown University before doing his medical training at Vanderbilt. Um, he then went on to do all of his medical training at the University of Pennsylvania, including his internship, residency, and then his fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine. He is currently an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and he does lots of work looking at acute kidney injury and critical illness. So he's here today to talk to us about AKI and critical illness using human study to inform mechanism. So take it away, Michael. Well, I really appreciate the invitation. I'm very glad that I have a chance to speak and that we could get this together at some future point. I would love to have a chance to come down to Maryland and get to speak with people directly, but I imagine that you all are in a similar situation that uh, we're in with uh, overextensions of critical care faculty and other practitioners. And so uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to jump on and uh, discuss something that is not totally focused on COVID-19, although um, I'm, I'm going to try to stay away from the feeding frenzy. There's no question that some of the stuff we're doing has some COVID-19 implications, uh, but this is mostly going to be focused on research that we have done up until six weeks ago. And let me see if I can actually get this to move forward. Good. Here we go. Here's my disclosure slide. I am not a nephrologist. So if you were hoping for that, uh, and then you're going to be disappointed that I'm not a nephrologist, then perhaps you can go back to treating COVID patients or, or read an article or something like that. So I apologize, but please take what I say with a grain of salt because I am not exactly a kidney expert. I do like to think that I bring a uh, clinically focused critical care flavor to the study of acute kidney injury. Um, and then this is my shout out slide to Maryland. So uh, I hope that all of you recognize this as Camden Yards. And the reason that I have this up is when I was growing up in Virginia, there was no such thing as the Washington Nationals and we were all Baltimore Orioles fans. And I used to go and sit out way out in the bleachers in the outfield. They used to have $4 seats there. I, I don't know how much they cost at this point, but uh, it was a site of uh, many an enjoyable night in my youth. So here's the outline of today's talk. Uh, three basic things that I want to go through. Why am I studying AKI? And uh, hopefully I mean to impress by that as to why we should study or be interested in AKI, particularly in critical illness. Um, and uh, then I'd like to go through two uh, basic lines of inquiry that we've had over the past several years, specifically one on obesity and adipokines and their implications for acute kidney injury mechanism, and then a second line of inquiry we've had surrounding damage-associated molecular patterns and cell death markers and what they could mean for AKI. So starting out with why am I studying AKI? Well, the simple answer is that every AKI mortality graph looks like this one that is totally randomly selected from the literature, but just happens to be from one of my publications, uh, showing the percent dead at hospital discharge by AKI stage. Um, and I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek about the randomly selected. There are many, many, many articles that show this same thing in much larger critical illness populations, um, pretty much any population you can find. 
And uh, these are adjusted associations that you can see uh, by AKI stage. If you have AKI stage one, which is up to a doubling of your creatinine, uh, this is in a trauma cohort, you have about a doubling of uh, mortality at hospital discharge. And then on up, particularly with stage three AKI, which is a tripling or more of creatinine or the need for renal replacement therapy, uh, that the likelihood that you will not survive uh, the hospitalization goes up substantially. And it's not just a problem for the ICU team. This is not just about death at hospital discharge, but this is a study by uh, Linder that was published, the one on the left, um, published, published in the Blue Journal in 2014, uh, that looked at patients who had survived 28 days and then looking at uh, what their cumulative survival was following the 28-day survival. And what you could see is the um, solid line there is the survival for even just the stage 1 AKI patients, substantially below patients who did not develop AKI during their hospitalization. And the measure on the bottom is years. They went out years. You can see that most of the difference occurs over the course of the first year uh, before then the curves have a similar slope heading out. And then Ron Wald had done this study um, in 2009 that he published in JAMA looking at the risk of chronic dialysis after acute kidney injury and then recovery. And what he did was he took patients who had acute kidney injury requiring renal replacement therapy, so this was more severe AKI, but then had recovered renal function at the time of hospital discharge. So these are the folks that uh, perhaps the 50% of folks who end up on renal replacement therapy for AKI who then come off RRT by discharge, but their rates, as you can see in the dark line, of uh, needing chronic dialysis over the ensuing years was much higher than those who had had no acute kidney injury. So both from a mortality and a uh, chronic morbidity standpoint, we're concerned that AKI at bare minimum is a marker of poor outcomes, um, but there is probably an actual contribution of the AKI itself to some of these outcomes. Um, and I kind of make some clinical arguments here. There are no data attached to these, but when I think about uh, managing a patient with AKI in the ICU, I say, well, I have the following problems. It may compromise my ability to follow urine output as a measure of resuscitation, certainly can limit flexibility in dosing IV fluids for shock, may precipitate edema in my other favorite organ, the lungs, complicates imaging decisions, particularly regarding the administration of IV contrast. Um, and IV contrast, although a source of debate among people as to how nephrotoxic it actually is, I think that that debate is not well resolved in the critical illness population. It necessitates drug dosing changes, and those drug dosing changes are poorly studied. And so it's difficult for us to tell if we're dosing patients appropriately. Certainly, once you get to the point of adding a catheter, uh, it adds a potential uh, additional infectious source and a source for clots. Um, kidney dysfunction itself has been shown to suppress the immune system and not just in the chronic state. Uh, likely that AKI will contribute to delirium, especially undertreated AKI, 
And if you're using continuous modalities of dialysis, that certainly increases nursing utilization. And, and there are multiple other things that one could think of as to why AKI is problematic. And so uh, here's the state-of-the-art AKI treatment slide. And again, this is uh, not meant to make fun of people who are trying their best or our best to try to put together good treatment algorithms. But I think when you look down the list of what was recommended by the KDGO group in 2012, which is essentially the summary recommendation still, um, you look at discontinue all nephrotoxic agents, ensure volume status, monitor, avoid, et cetera, et cetera. Most of these things are considering, monitoring, avoiding, that sort of thing, which I say the translation is please don't make things worse than they already are. And that is not exactly a therapy. Even for those of us who uh, bemoan the fact that we don't have a pharmacologic therapy that's well-proven for ARDS, we do at least have some strategies that have been proven in randomized controlled trials to improve mortality. And AKI really is not there. There are a few things that uh, have shown some benefit in some studies, but then have had conflicting other studies. Uh, and we're just really not exactly sure what to tell people to do beyond deliver good critical care, which is probably doing a lot, but we would like to be able to do more. So. One question that folks in the field uh, have had is, uh, could we avoid our problems with AKI if we could just detect it earlier? And uh, creatinine and urine output, to some extent, are well known to be delayed markers uh, across the board, and then in certain circumstances can be even delayed up to 24 to 48 hours to really show the extent of kidney injury that is happening. And so... We wonder, well, if we could get to these people, if everyone could understand that a small creatinine bump is significant and you should jump on top of patients as soon as uh, their creatinine bumps by 0.3 or 50%, then we will be able to improve outcomes. So Perry Wilson, who used to be at Penn, uh, uh, worked with uh, Barry Fuchs, who's our MICU director, and myself and several others on uh, a randomized controlled trial of electronic AKI alerts, uh, which was a few thousand patients that we ended up enrolling. And uh, when patients, patients were enrolled when their creatinine hit the limit for consensus defined AKI. And then an alert text would go out to the covering provider and the uh, covering pharmacist saying, this patient has been identified as having AKI based on the latest creatinine value Please take appropriate diagnostic and therapeutic measures. We indicated that it doesn't fire for all patients because it was an RCT and the other half of the patients didn't have an alert. And then we directed people to the study website, which had a link to those previously mentioned KDGO AKI practice guidelines to see what would happen. And essentially what happened was uh, about half of the patients, their uh, creatinine that caused the alert to trigger, that was their peak creatinine. They never worsened from there. And that was underscored by, if you look at the first row there, the increase in creatinine from randomization was small, 1.3 to 2.1% percent, percent um, creatinine increase from randomization. 
Um, but then when you compare the two groups, the alert and the usual care group, there was really no difference, uh, if anything, numerically slightly higher rates of dialysis in the uh, alert subgroup, no difference in death. Uh, and then the uh, we utilized a composite p-value. So I think what we figured out from that was at the very least a low-touch alert um, where all you're doing is FYIing people and you can go to a website. That's probably not going to work. Perry, who's now at Yale, uh, is actually embarking on a much larger uh, study, a multi-center study that will involve much more intensive interventions that result from the electronic alert to see if that has any impact. But at least for right now, simple AKI alerts probably uh, are not going to have a large impact on outcomes. So what we've looked at uh, have been AKI biomarkers. Um, and uh, AKI biomarkers can be used for risk stratification. This schema here, and this is one attempt at humor during the presentation, is supposed to represent what happens from kidney health to kidney non-health. And just because it's a little bit more difficult for me to interact with the audience here, I will merely explain that there is a person, uh, a, a friend of mine from residency who became a nephrology fellow, who was able to convince the National Kidney Foundation to lend him their costume for Billy the Kidney who for unclear reasons has a sheriff's star on the kidney. That is the National Kidney Foundation mascot. And the picture on the left shows the kidney with his daughter taking a leak. A leak, the vegetable. Insert laughter here. And then on the right-hand side is Billy the Kidney reviewing his test on which he has received an F, which is supposed to represent acute renal failure. So the bottom line is this highly instructive and educational schema shows going from kidney health to kidney failure in the setting of an insult such as sepsis, trauma, or surgery, and what I deem in the risk period a period of generalized frustration, meaning there is this insult. We kind of do the best that we can do at resuscitating patients, but there's only so much that we can do, and in many patients, the serum creatinine just goes up and the urine output decreases anyway. And so one of the questions here is whether in the very early going, well before the serum creatinine goes up or the urine output goes down, is it possible that we could check a biomarker that risk stratifies patients, and if we determine that a certain group of patients is high risk for developing AKI, we can target a therapy to those patients. Um, another thing that we can think about and what we've focused on a little bit more is utilizing biomarkers to elucidate targetable mechanisms because if we're going to do the risk stratification to identify a group of patients for therapy, we'd like to actually have a therapy that we can give them, and we've been behind on that. So ideally, we would love to be able to obtain serial kidney biopsies in patients to determine, to determine pathophysiologic processes that are involved. But realistically, what we have thus far is the ability to get biomarkers in obtainable fluids. And our question is, can we utilize 
those biomarkers to identify patients for targeted therapies, that if you have certain biomarkers that are elevated or decreased, uh, that that may reflect a specific pathophysiology that could be targetable. And then, of course, uh, going past the risk phase, uh, patients who have now developed acute kidney injury, at the very least in the early stages, one wonders is if there is a biomarker among those patients that could then identify patients for targeted therapies to prevent the progression and outcome and some of the disability and death that we already reviewed that can go along with acute kidney injury. So that is, uh, that is the, the background for some of the studies that we've been doing, and I hope, I hope lays some kind of context for this as I talk about first obesity and adipokines, and then a little bit of the work that we've been doing on DAMPs and cell death markers. And I will, I'm actually going to, since I'm not actually monitoring the questions, I am just uh, going to say to Andy, if there are questions that people have that they want to interrupt me with, um, just feel free to uh, jump in and interrupt the presentation. I'm happy to uh, answer questions as we go along. And I'll keep an eye on the chat for you, Michael. Okay, sounds good. So, um, so going back to this study, which actually was a, this was uh, my master's thesis project, where we took this ongoing trauma cohort that we had at Penn. Um, and I don't know if Giora Netzer is uh, uh, attending this today, but Giora uh, was uh, heavily involved, I believe, with this trauma cohort a little bit before my time. Uh, but we took this ongoing trauma cohort that was designed to study ARDS and we phenotyped acute kidney injury in it and then just did a basic study looking at risk factors for acute kidney injury after trauma. And the table that I'm showing is, is uh, a portion of the multivariable model showing the standardized AKI risk associated with different levels of the predictive variables and we noticed a pretty prominent effect of BMI, especially among obese patients, uh, for increasing the risk of AKI in this group. And we were interested in figuring out what might be behind it, not least because uh, obesity had been associated with AKI in other populations as well, so had been in uh, general critical illness populations in a population of ARDS patients, cardiac surgery. Um, another group from Penn had published a study on AKI in uh, elderly obese surgical patients. Um, and, you know, some of, we did have some concern that the way AKI is defined could set up obese patients to have an association that didn't have anything to do with uh, their renal function. Instead, could have to do with baseline creatinine or the way that urine output was modeled. Uh, this is just a, a close-up of some of the tables from uh, Graciela Soto's study that was done in ARDS patients, ARDSnet patients. Um, and in the bottom category, table four, it basically shows that the AKI within each subset of uh, body mass index, each BMI category, was still strongly associated with Mortality. So you can see among the obese patients, uh, 31% uh, of those with AKI died, whereas 7% of those without AKI died. So um, our thought was 
the obesity is probably connected with an AKI that is clinically relevant, a clinically relevant increase in acute kidney injury. So we wanted to understand this a little bit better, and we put together a study taking advantage of the fact that many trauma patients get CT scans as they come in. Uh, we took the CT scans and uh, we utilized, you can see this, uh, this little green line that is separating the subcutaneous fat from then everything inside the green line in the CT scan slice uh, uh, that measures in the fat Hounsfield units is visceral fat. And we tried to, we quantified the subcutaneous and adip, uh, subcutaneous and visceral adipose tissue and looked at the associations of those measures with AKI. And, uh, and then we plotted these alongside the association of BMI with AKI. And what I think you can see from the graph is that if you just look at the percentiles of visceral fat, subcutaneous fat, BMI, going from the 5th to the 25th, 50th, 75th, 95th percentiles, um, these travel pretty closely together, meaning that uh, there wasn't necessarily a specific large addition to the predictive power uh, of adiposity if you quantified it by either visceral or subcutaneous adipose tissue versus BMI. But it certainly underscored that what we thought we were getting with BMI the fat probably was what we were getting and that there's specifically an association between adiposity and AKI. Um, and we looked at this a little bit further based on some of the work that was being done uh, by one of our colleagues, Murdoch Riley, who's in cardiology. Um, he had been studying adipose inflammation as it relates to uh, atherosclerosis. But as part of that, he had healthy volunteers come in and have LPS injections done and then was measuring inflammation and other markers within adipose tissue after LPS infusion. And what this graph shows is the IL-6 fold chains in the 120-fold range, so just a huge, huge increase in adipose expression of IL-6 in response to LPS. And the, the way that we thought this could be connected was that LPS um, has actually been not such a terrible model for uh, trauma, at least globally, in terms of how gene expression changes, uh, although clearly there are going to be some differences between uh, a healthy population getting LPS and trauma patients. Um, further, things like IL-6 certainly have been, this is just one study, but in multiple studies, have been associated with the development of AKI. This just happened to be in a population of patients who had ARDS. And further, it's well understood from the basic kidney literature, looking at renal ischemia reperfusion injury, that inflammation is a key component of that, involved in microvascular and endothelial injury, then resultant inflammation in the interstitium, and then subsequent tubular epithelial injury leading to uh, the AKI phenotype among animal in animal models. And we were further interested in uh, specifically in adipokines. Um, the two that we ended up focusing on because they had the best preliminary data at the time were resistin and leptin. And this schematic shows at least some of the known effects of 
circulating leptin and resistin working through either the leptin receptor or resistin through an unknown receptor or channel, but then resulting in uh, increased intracellular expression of inflammatory mediators and then potentially uh, to cell damage and organ dysfunction. So we were wondering if that could represent something of a connection, these adipokines, which Murdoch Riley had seen in his LPS studies, were also increased uh, in response to LPS. And resistant in particular, um, it was identified actually originally in uh, mice, in the fat tissue of mice. But in humans, it is largely felt to be produced by uh, monocytes and macrophages, can be produced by adipose tissue resident macrophages, leads to insulin resistance. Um, it's documented that there are increased plasma levels in chronic kidney disease, which is shown in the figure on the right, particularly in CKD4, that the uh, regular plasma resist resistant levels are much higher uh, than uh, in those patients who have mild or, or no CKD. Um, as I mentioned, there are elevated adipose and plasma levels in healthy subjects after LPS infusion. Plasma levels of resistant in particular have been associated with mortality and critical illness, uh, but limited examinations of organ dysfunction. And then, of course, uh, maybe leaping ahead uh, a little bit too quickly to, well, would there be anything that uh, we might be able to do about this if we think that resistant is a bad actor in this setting? Well, we know that thiazolidine dienes can decrease plasma levels of resistance. So there's at least a theoretical treatment out there that could be related to this. And so based on that background, we had created this conceptual model of obese patients or patients with excess adiposity in the setting of trauma, and if you look at the top portion of this, um, uh, potentially resulting in a response to acute trauma within adipose tissue that involves altered levels of adipokines or adipokine uh, expression, specifically resistant and leptin, that could also result in direct change in gene expression of uh, IL-6 and other inflammatory mediators, uh, and that this may then translate into the plasma, whether it's originating in the plasma or coming from adipose tissue, and then those circulating mediators ultimately contribute to the excess risk of acute kidney injury we're seeing in obese patients. Now, the um, dashed arrows are showing other potential plausible reasons for association between obesity and acute kidney injury. Under resuscitation, uh, if we approach obese patients in the same exact way from fluid as we do any other patient, we do know that obesity, uh, that obese patients have increased circulating blood volume, and so we may under-resuscitate those patients. Um, it's possible that they are more predisposed to rhabdomyolysis or negative effects of rhabdomyolysis, in part because body mass index doesn't just reflect fat mass, but can reflect lean mass as well. And we noted this when we were reviewing CT scans in this very young population. Some patients with BMIs of 27, 28, 29 uh, had very little fat mass, but uh, had uh, tremendous amounts of lean mass, of muscle mass. Um, 
could potentially uh, contribute to intra-abdominal hypertension. And obesity is definitely associated with chronic kidney disease. It's just it, it may be associated in, in a way that is not detectable by just looking at baseline creatinine. So I'm going to talk for a couple of minutes about plasma, and then we'll go through a couple of these other things, studies that we've done trying to uh, look at this. So um, the Petros cohort, uh, this is essentially what we renamed this ongoing trauma cohort that has been in existence really since the late 1990s, but more formally since about 2005. Um, and then m more recently from 2012 onward, we started collecting plasma in these patients. So we took 175 of these patients, measured uh, resistant at presentation. We also measured at 48 hours. And uh, what I'm showing here are the associations of body mass index with resistant, resistant on the log scale here, uh, showing an association of increased resistant levels um, at presentation, trauma patient, trauma bay presentation with body mass index. And then also an association, and this is um, an adjusted association adjusted for things like injury severity score and trauma mechanism, um, showing a pretty substantial increase in risk of AKI when you look from about the uh, 5th to the 95th percentile of log plasma resistant levels. So that's, that's what the scale is here. If you look at, um, uh, at this at 6 down here and at 12 here, this is uh, that captures between the 5th and 95th percentile of the patients that we had, going from a risk of AKI in the range of 10 to 15%, all the way up to as high as 40%. And we looked at leptin as well. Leptin, not surprisingly, was strongly associated with body mass index. That's been well demonstrated in the outpatient population. Um, but these are also, there's the potential for evoked levels and uh, changes in these levels in response to trauma. Um, and then we uh, stratified our analyses uh, by sex for leptin because there are major differences by sex in baseline leptin levels. And we found an association between leptin and AKI in the males only. Now, the uh, female population was much smaller in this trauma cohort. Uh, and so it's very difficult to make any conclusions as to whether that uh, is a real difference on stratification or simply a power issue. Uh, but we did continue to see an association of leptin with AKI. So that was what we had found in the plasma. And what, what I didn't include on uh, those graphs was uh, that IL-6, as shown in prior studies, was associated with acute kidney injury, but it really did not track very well with body mass index. Um, so another part of this study was then to look directly at adipose tissue to try to answer the question whether resistant and leptin or any of these other mediators are actually coming from adipose tissue. So on the left-hand side, I've described a prospective cohort of um, patients in whom we collected adipose tissue. And uh, this, was, this cohort was was a fair amount of work to try to get 24-7 uh, type coverage in order to enroll trauma patients who required emergent operation in whom we could then go in and obtain subcutaneous adipose samples because 
they were already having their X lap or uh, whatever else they were having done. We did attempt to get whole blood in some of these patients, but we're not able to get it in uh, the majority. So this is about 51 patients total with subcutaneous adipose specimens. Um, and then we looked at adipose gene expression and blood gene expression um, with outcomes of AKI and uh, planning to look at plasma adipokine levels, but have not done that yet because this is still in process. And then we had uh, an additional cohort uh, that I'm calling a blood prospective cohort. It's about 52 trauma patients requiring ICU admission who were fairly sick. Um, and in this case, we did not obtain adipose tissue, but we were able to obtain whole blood and plasma. Um, and it, it, all of them had blood gene expression. So we were able to look more broadly at blood gene expression and the association with AKI in this group. And uh, the, the results that we have at this point are uh, really somewhat preliminary. We've been sifting through the gene expression data here. Just to orient you to this table, um, what I have over here on the left are transcripts. RETN is, is resistant, leptin, TNF, IL-6, MCP-1, typical inflammatory mediators. And then within the adipose cohort, um, I've listed adipose gene expression in fold change. So these are not odds ratios. Basically, any positive number means there's an increase in expression. Any negative number is a decrease in expression. Um, and then blood expression in the small subset in whom we had it, the 16 in whom we had it. And then over here, the blood cohort that we have is just blood gene expression. And the fold change is comparing those who developed AKI versus those who did not develop AKI. And what we found so far is that for our candidate transcripts, there's not a lot of difference in adipose gene expression between those who have AKI and those who don't. Now, we still have um, analyses pending comparing trauma patients with a non-trauma population because my anticipation is similar to the findings in the earlier LPS studies. We're going to find differences in adipose gene expression in response to trauma. It's just that those differences in adipose expression do not necessarily track with acute kidney injury. Whereas within blood we found particularly with resistin a strong association uh, between resistin gene expression in whole blood and the development of acute kidney injury. And I think this goes along with what we were seeing in the plasma, but one of the questions here being, what is the source of the resistin that we're seeing? We can't rule out that there are other sources, but certainly these findings would suggest that uh, at least some of that elevated plasma resistant level is coming directly from whole blood gene expression. And I think that we thought that the resistant findings were notable not just because there was a significant p-value and a uh, substantial fold change, but um, that resistant itself within the blood expression cohort, this 52 patient cohort, of about 25,000 transcripts, it was the third highest transcript hit for AKI. Um, so we think that it probably warrants some additional looking. We just can't say right now, we don't think necessarily that it's being sourced from adipose tissue. And then um, just along the lines of uh, following an alternative pathway, another explanation or other contributors to uh, the obesity AKI association, 
although we haven't been able to do studies yet looking at under resuscitation and intra-abdominal hypertension and subclinical CKD is very difficult to evaluate. We did do a preliminary study looking at rhabdomyolysis. Um, and this is a study that uh, was headed by Charlie Vasquez, who is a surgical resident here at Penn. And uh, what he did was he looked at CK measurements that were done clinically and uh, looked to see what the association of CK was with body mass index and uh, whether it impacted the association of body mass index with acute kidney injury. Now, it's nothing new to say that rhabdomyolysis could be associated with acute kidney injury. That's no surprise. The things that he was interested in looking at the most were, number one, are there smaller elevations of uh, creatine kinase that could be associated with increased AKI risk? Because in most publications, either most frequently there's a cutoff of 5,000 that they say, you know, you have rhabdo, you're greater than 5,000, and that's all they look at, or occasionally will look at uh, patients who have levels higher than 1,000. But I think what you can see in the graph on the right is that AKI risk rises um, even as you are going up from, uh, you get up above the upper limit of normal just in the couple of hundreds of CK. And this is the graph is presented on a log scale on the x-axis. Um, but certainly the AKI risk is increasing even below the level of 1,000 and most certainly between 1,000 and 5,000 there's an increased risk associated with the peak CK that we get. And the other question here was because elevated BMI may be associated with higher lean muscle mass, and that could plausibly be associated with uh, greater rhabdomyolysis-associated AKI, does it impact the association of BMI with AKI? So in the table on the bottom, um, the in the main model, uh, here are the adjusting variables looking at the association of body mass index with AKI and peak CK with AKI. And then what happens down here is just if you adjust that body mass index AKI odds ratio um, for all of those variables in model one plus the peak serum CK, there is a modest attenuation, not a huge attenuation, but there is an attenuation. Um, and similarly, BMI itself attenuates the association of peak CK with AKI. Um, we're still not sure exactly what to make of these data, and uh, the, the best follow-up study, we think, would be uh, uh, doing something where we are actually testing values of either CK or potentially myoglobin um, close to the time of admission, because just going by peak CK, oftentimes that takes a couple of days, and many of these measurements are specifically informed by whether clinicians decide to test them. So the summary of obesity and AKI, before I move on to uh, uh, some of the other uh, studies that we've done on DAMPS, um, is that both BMI and specific measures of adiposity are associated with AKI after severe trauma. Um, the plasma levels of resistant and leptin are associated with BMI and AKI. Whole blood but not adipose gene expression of resistant is associated with AKI in trauma patients. Um, and we are certainly interested in understanding the direct and indirect renal effects of these adipokines, particularly resistant. 
in critical illness models. Um, and then lastly, it's possible that uh, some degree of rhabdomyolysis may explain a portion of the BMI AKI association. So I'm just going to stop for a sec there and see if there are some questions on that section. We have one question in the chat. Um, it says, obese patients with obstructive sleep apnea can have increased lactin levels compared to obese without OSA. Could there be an additive role of both being obese and having moderate to severe OSA with AKI? That is a great question. Um, I, I most certainly don't know the answer to that, and that uh, OSA has not been one of the things that we have typically gathered in our form, uh, in our case report form, but that's an interesting thing for us to look at. Were there other questions? I think that's all so far. Okay. All right. So let me, let me move into uh, DAMPS and cell death markers. So this is a little bit more recent, some of the things that uh, we've done in this regard. Oops. So going back to that uh, risk factors page, uh, we, along with others, found that uh, there was an, there's an association of red blood cell transfusion with AKI risk. In this case, we looked at unmatched red blood cells, but really almost no matter how you slice it with transfusions, uh, there's an association, particularly uh, red blood cells or um, FFP. Um, and a colleague of mine, Neelam Mangalmurti, had uh, been studying transfusions and lung injury and got very excited and said, you have to look at necroptosis, to which I said, what's necroptosis? So I'll get to that in a sec, but th these are some of her data looking at uh, transfusions and necroptosis in acute lung injury. She created animal models in which necroptosis, which is a form of cell death, uh, uh, resulted from the application of red blood cells to uh, lung tissue or transfusion in animal models uh, that were primed with LPS. Um, and so just taking a step back about cell death, because necroptosis is a form of cell death, this was my medical school experience of cell death. It was basically either programmed, which is apoptosis, or it's unregulated, it's necrosis. The cell gets smashed or something like that, and then it's totally dysregulated, and everything just kind of falls apart. And then uh, here's my little semi-joke about the fact that I am not on Twitter, um, but uh, cell death in the Twitter era is there are all of these different versions of cell death, and in fact, many of them, it's no longer just apoptosis, but many, many of these are potentially programmed. So here's necroptosis at the top with the big flame so that you know that it's incredibly important. Um, so uh, what does this look like at the cellular level? Uh, so we do think that this is a, a targetable, potentially targetable form of cell death. Um, first, there are uh, receptors that are ligated by uh, mitochondrial DNA or TNF that then result in activation of this uh, molecule called RIPK3, a receptor uh, interacting protein kinase 3, which is a key mediator of this form of cell death. Uh, RIPK3 activation then uh, results in uh, oligomerization of uh, MLKL, which translocates the plasma membrane, causes plasma membrane rupture, and then you have a release of 
various damage-associated molecular patterns such as mitochondrial and nuclear DNA in the typical necrotic phenotype fashion. So it's regulated, it goes through a receptor pathway, but the phenotype is one that looks necrotic and potentially would go along with the propagation, further propagation of cell injury, cell death in a positive feedback loop that we tend to see in the setting of organ dysfunction. Um, And a lot of the early data from the bench on necroptosis was specifically in renal ischemia reperfusion injury. And so um, uh, just looking, this is the um, tissue sections from the kidneys that go along with this renal damage score. Uh, But uh, ischemia, um, mice who uh, were subjected to ischemia reperfusion injury you just look at the black bar, that's the whole kidney, um, had a high renal damage score. When uh, pretreated with necrostatin-1, which inhibits necroptosis, it was significantly reduced, whereas when treated with an apoptosis inhibitor, there was basically no reduction in the renal damage level. Um, and further, some of these studies have shown that uh, tubular RIPK3, again, RIPK3 being that essential mediator of necroptosis, was uh, found to be increased after renal ischemia reperfusion injury. So we asked the question whether plasma RIPK3 might possibly be a necro- necroptosis biomarker. And again, this was based on uh, Neil Mangelmurdy's studies, uh, where she had looked at endothelial cells that were exposed to a stimulus causing necroptosis resulting in uh, higher supernatant RIPK3 that could be inhibited by a necroptosis inhibitor. Um, And similarly, in uh, mice that were exposed to red blood cell transfusion uh, thought to cause necroptosis of endothelial cells, there was a profound increase in plasma RIP3 in those mice. So we looked at this a little further in uh, our trauma cohort. First, we did a nested case control study of 80 patients and looked at both the association of uh, transfusions with RIPK3 levels and uh, AKI stage with RIPK3 levels. And what we found, just to orient you to this, is that the, the white bars here are RIPK3 levels at presentation, which in the trauma bay were largely quite low. But testing the levels 48 hours later, there was a uh, dose-dependent relationship between transfusions and uh, plasma RIPK3 levels. Again, this was a small study, so not adjusted for other factors. Um, And then similarly, for acute kidney injury, if you look at no AKI stage 1 or stage 2 to 3, the 48-hour levels of RIPK3 were uh, strongly associated with acute kidney injury. And so we looked a little bit further than that. We did an expanded study in the in that trauma Petros cohort where we could actually do adjustments for things like injury severity and red blood cell transfusions. And that's shown on the right here where you can see the probability of AKI goes from around 20% to 45 to 50% from the 5th to 95th percentile of uh, delta RIPK3 levels, a difference between baseline and 48 hours. This messy cohort is our sepsis cohort that we have here. And similarly, you can see a substantial increase in these uh, RIPK3 levels change from presentation to 48 hours and the probability of acute kidney injury 
Uh, and again, this represented an uh, adjusted finding, looking at things like shock on presentation and, and other potential confounders. Um, and similarly, we found an association between plasma RIPK3 and uh, survival at discharge. So patients who uh, did not survive had substantially higher RIPK3 levels at 48 hours. But a number of key questions are unanswered. It's still not clear what the sources of plasma RIPK3 are. Um, we don't know whether RIPK3 extracellular release and plasma levels are specific to necroptotic cell death. We have a suggestion from Neelan's earlier studies, but uh, very hard to confirm that. And then we also are curious as to whether release of damps, such as mitochondrial and nuclear DNA, contribute as part of this pathophysiologic pathway. So just a couple of comments on that, because this has formed some of our more recent studies that we've been doing. Um, it is uh, certainly known that the release of mitochondrial and nuclear DNA can interact with a variety of cells, including antigen-presenting cells, uh, then causing activation of uh, further immune response by ligating receptors like the TLR9 receptor. Uh, there's, a, there's a very well-described uh, interaction between mitochondrial DNA and the TLR9 receptor. Um, within the kidney itself, in animal studies, there is a substantial amount of uh, damage that can be done by injecting mitochondrial DNA into the blood of animals that can be ameliorated by um, a TLR9 knockout model. And then further, just looking at mortality, there was a study by uh, Augustine Choi's group uh, a number of years ago showing a substantial separation in survival when looking at mitochondrial DNA levels in critical illness populations. Uh, the upper 50% of mitochondrial DNA uh, plasma levels had a much higher mortality or much lower survival compared with those in the lower mtDNA group. Um, and so we uh, utilize, this is actually that same blood gene expression cohort that I was referencing before, um, which was a pilot study done with the Penn Acute Research Collaboration, looking at severely injured patients. In this case, we had uh, 55 patients who had plasma in whom we could measure mitochondrial DNA. And what the graph shows is in the red uh, is what happens to plasma mitochondrial DNA uh, in AKI patients whereas the black is what happens to plasma mitochondrial DNA in patients without AKI. We were particularly interested in what was happening over the first 48 hours because, as you may recall, uh, we saw a pretty big difference uh, when we were looking at RIPK3, and we had seen this somewhat similarly in mitochondrial DNA, that the 48 hours were the most informative. So this was a pilot study looking at serial samples and what we could see from it was that it wasn't really until 24 hours in that mitochondrial DNA started separating the AKI from the no-AKI group. There was a significant interaction by time, um, which we still are not exactly sure the reason for. We're wondering about the possibility of patients who have some kind of second wave response, and it is those patients who are then susceptible to the AKI. But I will say that a lot of the AKI here happened early. Um, and so uh, figuring out the chicken and the egg with these is a little bit difficult. Um, but we also were wondering about nuclear DNA, which is also released uh, in the setting of cell death. 
And there's a prior study uh, from intensive care medicine that looked at trauma patients and showed that the nuclear DNA elevations in trauma patients were far higher. Uh, this is, you know, a hundredfold change in the pre-hospital and close to that in the emergency room versus the fold change on the order of two to three in mitochondrial DNA. Um, and so looking at nuclear DNA, now the curves of AKI versus no AKI, you know, these are log copies per microliter. So, uh, uh, you know, virtually a two log increase in nuclear DNA levels above uh, the patients who do not have AKI. And these analyses, this graph itself is adjusted for injury severity score, trauma mechanism, red blood cell uh, transfusions, and shock. And then you can see if you just kind of take this initial time point and you say, well, is this possibly usable as a predictor uh, of um, AKI, you know, before the AKI actually happens, there's a strong, strong association between presentation plasma nuclear DNA levels and the probability of acute kidney injury. And you can see up in the corner, Hilary Faust is the, um, she is the one who is uh, leading the study. She's now at the University of Wisconsin, uh, but had been at Penn with us for a while. And so some of the implications on uh, this front are that circulating RIPK3 nuclear DNA, and then maybe to a lesser extent, mitochondrial DNA are associated with AKI and trauma patients. Um, it remains unclear whether these findings reflect tissue necroptosis, how well they might reflect tissue necroptosis or other degrees of cell death. But we think that they're interesting because if causal, there are multiple therapeutic considerations. There are necroptosis inhibitors that are actually currently under development. Um, DNAs is in existence. If we think that that uh, could possibly be a helpful uh, therapy and then TLR inhibitors as well are under development in a variety of chronic disease contexts and uh, may be considered depending on additional data that we get uh, here as a, a possible intervention to go to. I don't think we're there though. Um, and then one last question that we had is whether nuclear DNA could represent a histone effect because circulating nuclear DNA may just be a marker for histones um, and histones certainly uh, have been shown to be increased in plasma in the setting of renal ischemia reperfusion injury in mouse models. And so I would just like to end, uh, and we're probably not as on time as I would like, but still three minutes before the hour. Uh, I will say that circulating adipokines may link adiposity with AKI risk after trauma. Uh, the associations of circulating RIPK3 and DNA with AKI after trauma could ultimately lead to targets to mitigate kidney cell death and injury. And then uh, stepping back just a little bit more, I think that moving mechanistic biomarkers towards clinical utility requires a tremendous amount of creativity, certainly collaboration and comprehensive work. It involves both clinical and uh, basic studies, and we would love to be able to proceed with studies, and there are some that are underway, using more tissue to help further identify and validate non-invasive AKI biomarkers. And with that, I will say thank you very much, and I am also happy to take any other questions. Michael, thank you so much. That was really, really fantastic. I'm glad that we were able to virtually bring you here to the University of Maryland to share that with us. Um, I'm going to give people just a, a minute or two to see if any questions come up. Um, so just hold on for a little bit.
in the meantime, as uh, if people are thinking of questions to ask, I am going to comment. So I, I did not prepare a COVID slide. But I, I do want to make a comment about this, since this is what uh, we are all dealing with at the moment. And although I spent most of the last six and a half weeks doing uh, full tilt, just clinical care of patients, and I also I run the rapid response team at uh, Penn, and uh, we just did you know, there was plenty of administrative work and uh, implementing new guidelines and whatnot. That was most of what I was doing. But in the background, many of us have been having conversations about uh, the endothelial dysfunction effects of COVID-19. And some of you may be familiar with the fact that the early reports suggested that AKI rates were quite low in COVID patients. And I think that subsequent uh subsequent publications and certainly our clinical experience has shown that not to be the case, that there is plenty of kidney dysfunction among COVID-19 patients. Um, but we are very interested in potentially looking at whether some of these endothelial dysfunction mechanisms or things like circulating uh, mitochondrial or nuclear DNA uh, could explain some of the effects that we're seeing on the kidney right now in COVID-19. We're also, frankly, interested, I don't know what you all have seen at Maryland, but we have had a large share of obese patients come in with COVID-19, and obesity has been associated with disease severity. Um, and so similarly, I think we're interested in figuring out if any of our findings actually extend to this population. I think clinically, at least, I'm seeing something very similar in our COVID patients. So we're seeing a tremendous amount of patients who are obese. I would say obesity is probably at least just uh, as the attending taking care of these patients this week, the number one risk factor, it seems like, for COVID. I don't know that I've been able to correlate the severity of critical illness with the BMI necessarily, but certainly these patients are obese. And I agree with you, we're seeing a tremendous amount of kidney injury, uh, most of my patients are ending up on dialysis. So it's very interesting if there's a connection between the adipokines and um, the renal insufficiency that develops. Yeah, there's been, um, there was a commentary, I think, in, uh, I think it was the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology, um, that uh, they were bemoaning the fact that um, uh, severe kidney injury was being overlooked particularly from a resource allocation standpoint uh, with concerns that they would not have enough uh, kidney replacement therapy equipment and resources to manage all of the patients who were requiring this, uh, at least in New York. Outside of COVID, Michael, how close do you think we are to being able to take some of the work you did on the bench and taking it to the bedside. So how far are we from being able to actually measure adipokines and use that to drive our text message alerts to say, hey, your patient's at a high risk for AKI and we're still at an intervenable point and we know this based on their leptin? I would say uh, we're still a ways away from being able to utilize that information at the bedside. I do want to um, draw a distinction here between straight-up risk stratification and then um, informing a targeted therapy. So from a risk stratification standpoint, there are um, biomarkers that are 
better established and may or may not have an impact. So, for example, uh, urinary IGF-BP7 and TIMP2 constitutes a currently FDA-approved test that can be done to risk stratify patients for kidney injury. Uh, we're not using it at Penn, and uh, I will be more convinced about that test when it's uh, linked in studies to definitively improved outcome. But that's basically, that is likely to be, that and several others that are in the pipeline are likely to be better just overall biomarkers of are you at risk for AKI or worsened AKI. Um, I think what we would like to be able to do is to pair certain of these biomarkers that are important mechanistically with a specific associated therapy. And so to me, that is, um, that's a lot more work and it's a longer time frame because what we have to be able to say is we then take these observations from humans and we say, we think that resistance is important um, and could be important mechanistically, then actually translate that back into an animal model to see if um, interrupting that, giving a thiazolidine dione or something else like this to a good animal model of trauma or trauma-associated AKI, does it ameliorate the AKI before then moving that back into the human zone and saying, if you have an elevated enough resistance, then we're going to trial this therapy in phase one and then beyond. So I, I think that it's still, um, unfortunately, fairly far away, but I think that it is uh, worthwhile still considering because most of the broader therapies that have arisen just from animal models, where they say, hey, we gave this thing and the kidneys were all better, none of those therapies have translated into humans. And so we're, we're trying to pull the data back from the human populations, figure out what may be specifically relevant to those groups uh, so that we at least have a narrower list of uh, things that we can target for therapy. Okay. Yeah. Does anyone else have any other questions? Let's see. Mike McCarty says you mentioned the association of dams with AKI, but have you found anything with pants? Uh, we haven't looked at that specifically. It's a good question looking at pathogen-associated molecular patterns. Um, we would love to be able to do that. Uh, there, it's, there's going to obviously be a difference if you're looking at the trauma population, um, depending on what the trauma mechanism is, what kind of um, PAMP load they may happen to have. So obviously the... Um, uh, the uh, patients who have gunshot uh, injuries or stab wounds or what have you, if they have penetrating trauma, then presumably the PAMP effect may be greater. The leak of uh, bacteria into the blood may be significantly more. Some of the folks at Penn are working on ways to actually uh, detect that appropriately uh, in whole blood. Neelam Mangalmurti is one of them. Um, but uh, we don't have that yet up and running. It's a, a great question and would be, a, I think, a fantastic thing to look at. I don't see any other questions now, so 
anyone else has anything, go ahead and unmute yourself. You can speak up. Be brave. I think if there's nothing else, uh, you know, that was, that was awesome, Michael. Again, thank you so much. I know that you are also busy as a critical care person, um, obviously running your rapid response. I know Penn is busy with COVID, so we thank you very, very much for taking the time out to give this talk. Um, hopefully we can have you down here live in person, like you said, in the future, in the not-so-distant future. But I really thank you so much for sharing this work with us and taking the time out of your day to come speak with us. Yeah, that's, that's no problem. It was actually uh, wonderful to be able to get back into the research zone after everything that we've been doing. So I will just say uh, good luck to everybody down there. Um, we salute you. This is a challenging time, and uh, everybody is really doing good work. So good luck. You too, Michael. Be safe, okay? Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys.